Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Kamalski talk with Tom Nolan, CEO of Kendra Scott. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. Uh, and I'll be seeing you soon, I guess, for the big industry festivities next weekend. You know, I... Just realized I forgot to tell you. Sadly, I had to cancel my trip to New York. My mom broke her leg and she is doing okay, but is shuffling around in her first big x-ray on the day of the Gem Awards. And I just thought I should really not go to New York. I should be here to help my mom. So I'm going to miss the Gem Awards for the first time in, gosh, I don't know, 18 years, or I guess there was the virtual year we all had. But yeah, I'm really sad to be missing out, especially because our wonderful contributor, Amy Elliott, who's our All That Glitters columnist, and she up for the media award and I have a really good feeling that she's well you know I don't want to jinx anything here but I have a good vibe so I'm super bummed to not be there to be sitting with you all at the JCK table Um, so you'll have to root her on for me yes we will yeah that's uh if if you don't see Vic next week that's why yeah I'm sad to say it'll be first time I Again, haven't been at those awards for a long time, and they are a highlight of the year. So, but I will, I will be in Vegas, so everybody will see me in Vegas, and I, I hopefully I'll be in New York even before then. Come to think of it, I'm just wondering if we've ever seen our guest in Vegas, and we'll have to ask him if he if he makes it to the JCK show. He's got a brand so big that I'm I'm not sure he needs to be in Vegas. The brand I'll I'll start out. Many of you will know because it is one of those brands that has an origin story like no other. Founded in 2002 by Ken. Kendra Scott in Austin, Texas. The story goes she had $500, went door to door selling jewelry she'd made. And now as of six years ago, the brand was valued at north of a billion dollars. Today they have 130 retail stores. And we are so delighted to have Chief Executive Tom Nolan here as our guest today. Welcome, Tom. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me, Victoria and Rob. Appreciate it. Well, welcome. We, we're thrilled to have you. It's a brand. I mentioned JCK because I think it's not you don't exhibit, you don't. But do you do you ever go to JCK? Is that a show? I, I have. I've been to JCK before. I just and I don't go because I have anything against. I love I and appreciate. I think JCK is extremely valuable. We just bandwidth is finite, so it's hard to it's hard. And I have four children and a and a busy life, and so it's it's hard to find the time to get away. But we've certainly been there before, and Hopefully we get to go again. Usually we start out by just welcoming you and saying, tell us your origin story. How did you get into the industry and how did you meet Kendra? Yeah, my, my story is interesting. If you bear with me, I'll, I'll be happy to tell it to you. I did not expect to be in the jewelry business at any point in my life until eight years ago when I joined our board. But I grew up in New York. My dad's an electrician. I'm the only person in my family to graduate high school. And when I've gone to college on a baseball scholarship and played baseball and golf in school. And, and then when I get out of school, School, shockingly, when you don't have internships or a resume, it's hard to find a job. I didn't realize that at the time, but I had a lot of you know, jobs with roofers and contractors and I was caddying and I got out of school and I, I could not find a job. And this was in 1999 and uh, just kind of tripped into the publishing industry working for a company called Ziff Davis. So I, I, my first job was selling classified ads in the back of magazines. 
and uh, kind of had a knack for that for whatever reason. I think I learned about hard work as a kid through, you know, my dad was an electrician. My mom had all sorts of weird jobs. We had a hot dog truck at one point. She had a good humor ice cream route. In hindsight, she was the entrepreneur in our family. She had a GED business where she sold GEDs, which sounds very strange. I didn't even know that was a thing you could do. So started my career in the publishing industry. I wound up becoming a magazine publisher at 26 years old at Condé Nast after I left Ziff Davis and published Golf World Magazine, which is part of Golf Digest. Did that for several years. And I loved working in the publishing industry. I loved working for Sign Newhouse. I, I loved working at Condé Nast. It was kind of my first exposure to really nice things. You know, we published Vogue and Architectural Digest and Vanity Fair and beautiful magazines and great content, The New Yorker. And so that was the, the first time my eyes were open to that luxury world, if you will. And through a business relationship, I got to know Roger Farrer reasonably well and wound up leaving Condé Nast to join Ralph Lauren and became a senior vice president there overseeing a couple of business units for him and loved my time there. I think that was you know, at the time, that was a company I was most proud of handing him my business card because I loved the brand. I loved Ralph, loved Roger, loved the people I worked with. It was a great time to be there. Left Ralph after a couple of years and went up starting my own holding company called Prospect Brands, which was the name of the street I grew up on. Had a private equity partner and we bought distressed assets and tried to flip them around and turn a profit and have them be successful. And, you know, two of the three were successful. One was an unmitigated disaster, which is a great lesson to learn when you fail. And then while I was there, I got a phone call from a private equity firm called Norwest Capital, who was Kendra's first institutional investor. And that was in 2014. And as part of their investment, they had an outside board board seat to nominate. And they called me. I don't know how they found my number. I don't know why they called me. I had never served on a board before. I had zero experience in the jewelry business, but flew down to Austin, met with the PE firm and met with Kendra and we hit it off and I joined the board shortly thereafter and have been a part of it ever since. Before you joined the Kendra Scott board, did you know the brand at all? Was it something that was on the radar? Never heard of it. And I had bought a lot of jewelry for the women in my lives at the time, but never never knew Kendra Scott. We had no distribution in 2013, 14. I was living in North Carolina and we had at the time, I think, eight retail stores, all of which were in Texas. So outside of Texas, we were we were not a known entity at all. So yeah, it was my first first experience with the brand. It was a $40 million business when I joined the organization as a board member. The company was valued around $100 million. And then three years later, we did a transaction with another private equity firm that put that, you know, north of a billion dollar valuation on it. So it's it's been an amazing ride. Are you majority owned by private equity? Or? No, no. Kendra owns a majority of the business, has complete operating control uh, and governance of the brand. And we have, a min- you know, we've got a minority partner in Berkshire and Norwest also stayed in the business in a small way after a very successful exit several years ago. So great partners, wonderful strategic guidance partners in Berkshire. They, they've been terrific in helping us grow, but but do, they do not govern. You know, I briefly mentioned Kendra's origin tale because it is, again, a legend, but can you just just tell us a little bit about what happened between that 2002 founding and 2014 or 2013 when you got wind of the brand and joined and helped it grow. I mean, tell us a little bit about that background and how she managed to attract you. It's an, it's a, obviously a very interesting story. I mean, she started this company in 2002. She was a single mom. She had just exited a failed business called The Hatbox. Her stepfather, Rob, was an amazing guy who went up um, suffering, he had a brain tumor, went up dying of brain cancer ultimately, but she went to one semester of college and dropped out and she dropped out to help take care of Rob and he was being treated at MD Anderson in Houston. And she saw a lot of, you know, obviously going through chemotherapy, she saw a lot of people there who have lost their hair and wearing hats. And she had this vision of launching a hat company and hats becoming this prolific thing. It was would be like the roaring 20s and everybody wearing hat, top hats and fedoras and all the stuff. Obviously that did not come true, but she launched a, an organization called the Hatbox and it 
it, I mean, it was a disaster. I mean, it did not work. Nobody's wearing hats. But while she did that, she made jewelry on the side and was selling jewelry out of a little tea box kind of inside the hat box. And she wasn't selling any hats, but selling a lot of jewelry. So the hat box closed. She was down to her last 500 bucks. Her first son, Kate, had just been born in 2002. And, you know, she she launched with her last $500 at a spare bedroom of her house. She launched Kendra Scott Jewelry and went selling out of that same tea box door to door the brand, learned how to make jewelry. And it was very craftsman in the, in the beginning, but she didn't have anything but liked nice things and wanted to be able to purchase natural gemstones at an affordable price. And she couldn't find it. And there was a lot more white space at the time. So she, she launched it herself. And from that point on, she had basically an entire wholesale business. She would sell it door to door and then, you know, in little boutiques here in Austin and other places around Texas. And then the greatest gift she was given was something called the, the last great recession, 2008, where all of her wholesale customers, and we had a little business at the time. It was, you know, a million bucks and making a little bit of money, losing a little bit of money. It was like not a, a significant business, but it was a meaningful one in the sense that it was all she had, number one. And number two, she put a stake in the ground from the very beginning and said she was going to help anybody in need all of the time. So anytime somebody needed something, PTA needed something, uh, somebody was sick, like she was always there and had their back. And when 2008 happened, all of her wholesale customers were going out of business and she just put all her chips on the table and said, you know what, we're going to control our own destiny. She opened up her first retail store and something really remarkable happened. All of the people that she was there to support for the last several years showed up to buy stuff. And at the time, the impetus for the retail store was, and this still exists today to, to some extent, but going into a jewelry store in 2008 was not a great experience. And it's still not great. I was just in New York City recently for a board meeting. I went into Cartier and I went into Tiffany's. Like, it's very judgmental. Everything's under case. People are wearing gloves. Like, I felt anxious in it. And even, and back then you'd go into a, you know, a Signet or any of the places I, aforementioned and it just, it wasn't a great experience. So she launched this and everything was top of counter. It was very experiential. We gave people champagne when they walked in the door. There was always an event, always something going on. There was a lot of energy, high energy. People were happy. We encouraged people to try stuff on it. That was a catalyst for our success. And the company grew from there to, and we didn't have any money and free cash flow and a strong balance sheet was important, not because it was the right way to run a business, but because it was the only choice that we had, right? So we would open retail stores in secondary and tertiary markets because we, number one, we couldn't afford to be in big markets. And number two, we could control that experience and really become a part of the community in a way that we couldn't do in New York City or San Francisco or LA or Chicago or Miami. And it led to a lot of success. And the business was built really from the middle out. And I mean, geographically, the country middle out versus what most brands do is start on the coast and work their way in, right? So that proved to be really successful and an important ingredient for us to have the success we had. Now, you, you mentioned uh, you worked at Ralph Lauren. That seems kind of when you talk about kind of traditional jewelry stores that there's sometimes a stuffy atmosphere. I mean, that's sometimes the atmosphere you some might sense at Ralph Lauren or, you know, some something similar. Is that how's the company's cultures different from Ralph Lauren to Kendra Scott? I mean, they couldn't be more different. And I think, Rob, what you just articulated, I'm unashamed to say, I think is accurate. And I loved working there and I love Ralph and I love the people that I worked with and I still love the people that work there that I know. But yeah, it was an intimidating experience. I remember as a senior executive walking into the mansion on Madison Avenue and like I felt uncomfortable, right? So I think in, amongst luxury goods, that was a pervasive was and is continues to be a pervasive feeling. And, you know, a lot of people that shop in luxury stores like that feeling, so that's okay. But it's certainly not what makes somebody that doesn't have means feel good about walking into a store. So culturally, we have the most amazing familial and family is one of our pillars. This organization feels more like a family than anything I've ever been a part of 
I don't want to compare us to anybody because it's incomparable. We're better than anywhere, not any of the companies I've mentioned, but like we're just better because we have an organization where everybody is like-minded in that regard and that we want to do the right thing. We want to change the world. We want to help people's lives. We want to make it a better place, but we also understand how important it is to be successful, deliver an amazing customer connection, an amazing customer experience, and do it in a thoughtful, profitable way. And it makes us an outlier and it served us really well as we've gone through some really challenging things over the last couple of years, whether it was social unrest or COVID or, you know, an impending recession or, or whatever, the, the company has thrived through all of it because our connection comes first and we put the customer at the middle of every single decision that we make. And she's, she's our boss. She signs our paycheck. And I think with that mindset, it allows us to be really nimble and thoughtful and creative and compassionate to the customer. And then we have an employee, an entire employee base of 3000 people here that bleed that and believe in it and do the right thing. And it's, it's fun. And how uh, how involved is Kendra? I mean, is she in the office every day? Is she stepping back at all? She's in the office a lot and she's always present. Her and I talk, I would say, s- several times almost every single day. She is incredibly involved in an immersive way with everything product related, everything brand related, everything philanthropy related. You know, she's the face of our brand. Her name's in the building. She wrote a book last year, as, as I believe that you know. She's a guest judge on Shark Tank in a very consistent way. So she she's involved in the business, again, immersively in all of the areas that we need and want her to be involved in the business. And she's very, very present physically and and not physically sometimes to deliver those things for the customer. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural, untreated diamonds. They provide diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. You mentioned product and her involvement in that. I'd like to know a little bit more about the product and what is most popular price point wise, style wise, just to get a sense of what your what your kind of bread and butter is. Yeah. So w- when when the company started, there was a lot of white space between costume jewelry and bridge jewelry, which was essentially demi fine and fine to some degree. And she launched the business there with fashion being at the forefront of what we do, utilizing the majority of what we utilize are natural gemstones, natural materials that come from the earth in some capacity. The majority of our business today, more than half of it is in our fashion business, which is in the average price point or average ticket there is less than $100. And as the business has changed, we always, like the four things that we think about, regardless of what we do, whether it's diamonds or fine jewelry, demi-fine jewelry or fashion or home business or any of the other things we get into, we think about four different things and that's shape, color, material, and value. I think those are the things that we're most famous for in that and most identifiable for. When I think about great brands, I think about things that you can see across the room and you know what it is. And I think Kendra Scott has had that vivacious, colorful, natural gemstone, identifiable shape that you can see across the room. And we've had a couple of icons, so to speak. One is our Elisa necklace, which is a small pendant necklace. One is our Danielle earring, which have really been icons from the very beginning. Both of those have been in our line for 20 years. And our Elisa necklace retails for $55 to $60 and the Danielle earrings for about the same price point. And the brand stretches up to north of $10,000 dollars now in fine jewelry. But what we're known for, what we're famous for is our fashion jewelry and where we've made some really big strides in recent years has been some of the demi-fine and fine jewelry. And then I would say the other thing that we're also kind of known for 
for is our customization. I mean, we're the first brand in our category to have a create your own aspect and we call it color bar and color bar has really evolved nicely. It's been very consistent and been along with us the entire time, but now we're doing customization as it relates to engraving in both Scott brothers, our men's line, as well as our Demi fine business and also our fashion business. How important is Kendra's image? You mentioned that she was, she's been on Shark Tank and she wrote a book and she's gotten a lot of publicity. Is her image important? Like do most, when most of your shoppers, do they know who she is? Are they familiar with her as a person? Yeah, I'll answer bo- both of those questions because they're, they're two separate questions to me. Number one, critically important. She's an icon. I mean, she is somebody that is aspirational to all walks of life, rich, poor, male, female, people of different colors, shapes, and sizes. I mean, she's somebody that people aspire to be. And she has a Midwestern sensibility about her that is approachable and kind and warm and aspirational at the same time. Those things generally don't go together and it works. So she, she's very important for that regard. 5% of the country knows who Kendra Scott is the brand, right? So we have 95% and as big as we are, it's amazing the opportunity that we have out there. 95 out of every 100 people you talk to don't know who we are. So to answer your second question, when we do research, we find that you know less than half of our customers know who Kendra Scott is. In fact, when people walk into a lot of our retail stores and they meet a store manager, they think that that individual sometimes is Kendra Scott. So we have a lot of work to do there to bring that story to life and tell her story because her story is aspirational and meaningful because she's the great American success story. She is one of less than 20 females that have created and founded a business valued at north of a billion dollars. I mean, which is insane. And she did it with nothing. So telling her story is critical and we've unlocked when we do that effectively, we're really successful. And part of our reason for success too, and it kind of ties dovetails into that, your question, Rob, is we win on experience. You know, there's lots of companies that make pretty things. And subjectively, I believe that our product is better and more affordable and prettier. And, but that's a subjective statement. We win because we create connections with our customers and we do it through philanthropy. We do it through storytelling. We do it through aspiration. Uh, you know, we did in 130 stores, we did 20,000 events last year, creating connections. And every one of those events was tied through a philanthropic need for an individual. So our goal is obviously to, to run a, a successful and profitable business, but the real goal is to change people's lives. And I think that we do that in a really meaningful way. And that's why she started the business. It's very inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. Just again, to talk a little bit about the business and when we talk about the fashion business and these price points, has that customer been affected much or to, to what degree by all the macroeconomic issues we've seen? I mean, inflation, has that has that been difficult and how have you kind of transcended those challenges in the marketplace? The answer to that question is 100%. I think people's lives have been affected. We had the best year we ever had last year. We had the best holiday we've ever had last year, compound growth, double digits. We've had the best start of a year that we've ever had at the start of this year, run a February fiscal. So we've been able to zig when I think other brands are zagging because we have the balance sheet to support making aggressive decisions, opening retail stores. So I think we do really well in good economies and bad economies because of a lot of what I talked about earlier. We are not just a transactional jewelry business where somebody is like, eh, you know, things are tough. I'm not going to go in there. People still want experiences. And when you look at what is winning right now, it's experience. It's restaurants, it's bars. People were so cooped up over COVID. They want to get out and live their life. We create experiences, right? So we've been able to weather this storm. We've weathered the recession really well. We'll weather whatever comes forward really well because of that, because we create a connection. And because we're a discretionary product, we still have really high value and we mean something 
to people. It's not just about, I got to go out and I got to put a pretty earring on or a beautiful necklace or a bracelet. It's, it's our products mean something to people. And for middle and lower income individuals, in a lot of cases, we are aspirational and heirloom, in fact, in some places. And what we saw through the fourth quarter was in 2016, we launched a fine jewelry business. And I believe a lot of people stretched up into very high-end jewelry, you know, Tiffany's, David Uriman, et cetera. I think that those people, knowing that the economy is slowing a little bit, you know, they kind of pulled down into Kendra Scott. So they bought a $4,000 necklace from us instead of a $14,000 necklace from somebody else. So we saw a huge uptick in our fine jewelry business and our demi-fine business. So shorter answer is yes, I think that individual has been impacted for sure. And I think they'll continue to be impacted. I, you know, I have a little bit of consternation about the second half of the year, but I think that we've been able to stay out ahead of it and out in front of it and deliver a great experience and beautiful product at an affordable price. And people have continued to show up and the register is ringing. Hmm. So when I talk to a lot of direct to consumer brands, and I would put you guys in that category, the big thing they always complain about is customer acquisition costs and advertising on Facebook and Google and how expensive it is, especially with this recent change, I guess, to the algorithm regarding Apple. Has that been a big problem for you? And is there any ways you found to kind of get around it? Rob, it hasn't because I, I do not classify us as a D2C brand. I mean, I think we have we have a lot of interaction directly with our customers. You know, 50% of our business is retail, 35% is e-commerce. So that in itself, 85% of what we do is direct to consumer. But we have a meaningful wholesale business as well with some amazing partners. One of the things, again, I'll just go back to the experience that we create with our customers. And we do this primarily through our retail stores. We've never played that game. And I have served on the boards of direct to consumer businesses who are spending high double digits of revenue on marketing to do exactly what you're describing. The inefficiencies of what's happening on social targeting, that's a game that people won for a while. That game's not going to be won anymore because the algorithms are changing to your point and it's not getting easier. We've never played that game. We spend less than any organization I know on top line revenue on marketing, and we don't have have to because we pour our marketing dollars into experience. We pour it into retail. We pour it into grassroots. We pour it into partnerships and big brand versus chasing an easy dollar. And I think that the brands, to your point, that have been traditional D2C brands that have really thrived in that are trying to figure out what to do right now when there is not an easy answer. Are you pouring money into technology of any sort, whether it's you know augmented reality or even AI? Yeah, yeah for sure. We we did. Uh, you know, we were really early adopters on virtual try-on, which is important. For for just getting to mention it for our online customers who are trying to purchase stuff that can't get to a store or a wholesale partner. That was really important to us. We've spent uh, a lot of resources and time on We've got a great technology team here that is trying to get out in front constantly on making sure that we have the best in breed point of sale systems where you're not just transacting with a customer, but you're really being able to storytell and, and drive a CRM experience for a customer through technology. But anything that we're doing, we want to focus on how to create a better customer experience. And certainly technology drives a lot of that. But for us, it's always been more about you know the interface that we can have on a one-to-one basis with our customers. And, and that's kind of where we pour our resources. You, you've mentioned, you've talked a lot about the Kendra Scott customer experience what it's like in the store. So, you know, if we go into a store, what can we expect? Are you, do you still give out champagne? Is I, I assume there's warmth and greeting, but what kind of things do you think is important? There's some things that don't change by market, but most things change by market. We empower our store managers 
to be the CEOs of those that four wall, right? Whether it's our store in Roosevelt Field in Garden City or Soho or our flagship here in South Congress, like the store managers there are empowered to deliver the best experience and be the CEO of that store, knowing the intricacies of that specific market. But what you always can expect is somebody greeting you as soon as you walk in, somebody offering you, to your point, a glass of champagne or a beer or a glass of water or a soda or whatever you need, asking you questions, trying to create a connection. We spend a lot of time, Kendra spends a lot of time talking about making a connection, not just a conversion. And if you do that effectively, it's going to lead to a conversion. We know that, but we, we want to create an experience. We are going to encourage people to try stuff on. We're going to encourage people to have a drink. We want to ask questions about why you're there, what you're looking for in a not pushy way. When I met in shopping centers, that whether it's an internal mall or an external one, I always pay attention to what's happening in other stores. And by and large, they don't look like happy places, right? The associates that work there don't seem to be fulfilled by their jobs. They don't look like they're having fun. Our stores are fun. The people that work there, we have an amazing, amazing, amazing retail team filled with happy, excited people that are proud to work at our company that I'm very proud of that are having fun. And we invite our customers to participate in the fun and that experience. That's what it's all about. I mean, that's what retail is about. And I think that we do it better than most. We touched on it very briefly, uh, lab-grown diamonds. So you have a lab-grown engagement line. When was that introduced? And tell us how it's going. Yeah. So last year in 2022, we entered a new product category of engagement rings. We've always had a strong wedding business. And a lot of it's been a derivative of our color bar, where if you were getting married, a bride would go in and her wedding party, the bridesmaids would get matching earrings to and bracelets and necklaces and whatever. So we, we've always, and then we launched a bridal business for brides to wear on their wedding day as well. In addition to what the bridesmaids were wearing, and that, it's been a really successful business. We've done that for years, but Kendra saw some white space again in the same experience for engagement for both women and men. And last year in 2022, we, we launched engagement rings and we offer both options. We offer predominantly lab grown diamonds for a lot of reasons that are obvious and some that aren't aren't obvious. Then we also, we will do mine product as well for people, but we've seen really a focus of lab grown there specifically. We're excited about it. And look, and lab grown for us, pricing is important, right? It's a more affordable price point, as you know, with the exact same makeup as, as a mine diamond. And it seems to be a lot more popular choice for, you know, younger generation Z and millennials and a great fit for our customer right now. I think where we're going to continue to work on that business is really leaning into and, and having the experience be a little bit more immersive. So you could see standalone engagement bridal businesses coming from us in the future, potentially. And you you mentioned a men's line at one point. Yeah, it's, it's been great. A couple of years ago, we launched. So Kendra has three sons, Cade, Beck, and Gray. And during COVID, when she was designing the product, she was doing it in her living room because the office was closed and the boys were around and they both have a passion. They've watched their mom. I mean, literally, Cade was in a baby Bjorn going door to door when he was an infant with Kendra in the very beginning, but they've been around the business and they were getting involved in the design process. And like some of the stuff that she was designing for our regular mainline, the boys wanted to wear. So it just out of that was born Scott Brothers, and it was the brothers of Kendra Scott, uh, you know, the brothers together of Kendra, their mom. And that's where the name came from. And it's it's been really successful. 25% of our customers in our stores are men, most of whom are buying product for as gifts. We're an amazing gift-giving destination because of our experience and the ease of shopping and also the price point. And we wanted to capitalize on the, a man being in the store and offer, offer him something to wear for themselves and also get the boys involved in the business and fulfill a passion point for theirs. And as big as our business has become, somewhere of the way Ralph looks at it. I mean, Kendra sees this as a family business and it's been great. And the product's been really successful. It's definitely resonated with our male customers and it's it, it has turned into also a great gift giving opportunity for the female customers that are in our stores for the men in their lives. 
Now, I remember Ralph Lauren, I, I think Ralph Lauren started with like fashion and then kind of branched out into other things. Uh-huh. Could you see uh, Kendra Scott, the brand, branching out into other lines yep. besides jewelry? Yep, 100%. I mean, so Ralph, you know, Ralph started by making ties and selling them out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building in 1967 and turned into, you know, the preeminent global lifestyle American designer of our of our time. And I, I believe and am actually fully confident that Kendra Scott will become and is becoming a global lifestyle brand as well and in a really authentic, thoughtful way because of that aspiration that I mentioned earlier that she holds with her customers. We've already launched new businesses. I mean, Scott Brothers was kind of the first toe dip in there. We launched watches. We've done engagement. We launched an entire business called Yellow Rose several months ago, which has been incredibly successful, which was an inspiration of kind of Western Texas ranch business. Kendra has a ranch here called the Yellow Rose Ranch. So that was kind of the impetus for that. But I think there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon for us in new categories that will allow us to broaden our reach and broaden our product offerings beyond our core business, which is jewelry. Thank you so much, Tom. What a tremendous business you have there. And I'd love to come down and, and meet you and Kendra one of these days. What a what an icon. So thank you for sharing all that with us. Yes, thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah, Victoria, Rob, it, it was. I'm, I'm. Hopefully, it was helpful. It was a great opportunity to be here, so I'm happy to do it, and appreciate y'all giving us the airtime. Yeah, no, happy to have you. All right, well, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.